0: Well, this morning, one of my kids asked uh, what I'd be preaching on, and Olivia said, it's going to be on leadership. And they replied, I have enough leadership in my life right now. Uh, I thought that was pretty appropriate. I think that's what we all think when we see a sermon coming up on leadership. Uh, But today, we are talking about leadership, and this passage can be applied in in many different areas, arenas of society. It could be teachers, uh, parents, industry leaders, politicians, and church leaders. Uh, since we're in a church, I'm going to spend most of my time focusing on that area of application. And I admit the difficulty of preaching a message like this, uh, that song, Come Now Found of Every Blessing, uh, the phrase, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's, that's why that's one of my favorite songs, too. Um, I think it's easy to elevate uh, pastors and leaders and put them on a a level that makes it as as if we're different than you we're actually not we just have a different job but it is an important job and it's something we're going to be talking about a little bit this morning you know the prospect of finding leaders uh, in every phase of society including the church is one that is fraught with difficulty right now in particular we have many many who have failed us in recent years And it's been difficult for me as well because many of my mentors have not finished the race well. As I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking I would list out some of the leaders who have fallen recently, but the list honestly got so long that I thought it wouldn't be helpful. I thought it'd be about 10, but it got to be over 20. I felt like it was too much for us to really deal with. And the other reason I didn't want to list it, not only was it too long, You, Many of you have moved from areas of the country where you've actually been in churches pastored by these big-name men who have fallen. They're not just podcasters or article writers. To you, they were your pastor. Um, And for every big-name person who has fallen, there's hundreds of other smaller-name pastors, so to speak, who have also um, not finished well. Pastors failing is sadly not anywhere close to new to my experience. I'm not surprised by it anymore. I don't think many of you are either. My first experience with a pastor uh, failing for ministry was my RUF director at Auburn, Uh, a guy named Steve Malone. He's one of the best communicators of the gospel I've ever heard, uh, which makes it even more confusing and difficult. Um, He could explain the Bible and the gospel in beautiful ways, but there is also Kind of a bit of a smug arrogance about him that wasn't, you know, it was a bit distasteful. But he was such a good teacher that many people. I mean, Auburn had about four or five hundred students at RUF that were involved. Uh, Steve went on to plant a church in Birmingham and asked me when I was a senior at Auburn if I would be interested in planting the church with him. He would pay, or the church would pay for my seminary, and I would just work for the church all the way through. But um, I felt like I just, there was something about it that didn't seem right to me. Um, I, didn't, I just didn't feel good about him for some reason. I wasn't exactly sure why, but anyway, he went on to plant this church and had an affair with the children's ministry director and left the ministry, apostatized, ended up uh, buying a hot dog stand. He didn't have anything to do. He didn't have any, you know, anything else he could do besides be a pastor so he sold hot dogs until he was 37 when he died of cancer. And watching his life fall apart was, was really painful, painful for many people, painful for me, painful for many people in Birmingham. Because of all the leadership failure around us, it's become incredibly common, and I would say reasonable, for people outside the church to wonder what's happening in the church, to wonder why, you should be, why anyone would be a Christian, why anyone would go to church. When we moved into this new building, we went across the street to the neighborhood, the nearest adjacent neighborhood, and we had flyers. We were handing them out. Several of us were doing that, just to try to get to know the neighbors. And I, I noticed, and, and other people noticed, too, the difference, the way that people responded to me than to them, and the response was not positive. When I would introduce myself to certain people as the senior pastor of a nearby church, People would literally recoil from me Is an act of self-protection. Recoiling from someone physically is an act of self-protection. And instead of being offended by that, I kind of get it. I kind of understand because if a pastor was canvassing my neighborhood to introduce themselves, I would have a lot of questions for them before it just, you know, built confidence in me that this guy was walking around my neighborhood. I'm sure you would feel the same way you would have 20 to 50 questions you'd really want to understand a little bit more about before you felt like hanging out with that person. So what do we do with this collective societal distrust of leadership? It's not just in the church. It is in the church for sure. What do we do with this collective cynicism toward leadership as we grow up in this age? We grow up in an age where your kids and you are being formed spiritually in an age that is deeply cynical for good reasons about the idea of church leadership. So how do we respond to that? You know, some people will respond to that by justifying ourselves and telling the world and telling our neighbors that that's not a fair assessment. And, and definitely, uh, there have been Christians who have been leaders in building hospitals and schools In scientific research, Christians are out there in the world giving their lives to advance different causes in ways that is probably disproportionate to the average population. Christians are doing really good things. Christians have been leaders in the civil rights movement in some cases. You can list names of great people who have been Christians. It's not a bad thing to do. People like Bonhoeffer, Mother Teresa, Wilberforce, Dr. King, Blaise Pascal, the list goes on. The problem is for every good thing that Christians have done, you can easily find a powerful counterexample of how Christians have not lived well. And so what I'm going to suggest to you in response to this moment, in response to that type of a question, is that we would answer that more biblically. That we wouldn't try to show off the good. It's okay to do that every now and then, but we would lean into... The reality of humanity, the reality of sin, the reality of the brokenness of humanity that has even impacted its leaders and that we would then be able to draw people into the one, the one leader that stands up to the test, to the challenge, that we could point people to Jesus. You know, Solomon is not the first deconstructor of leadership. In fact, the Bible does an excellent job of pointing out the flaws of all of its greatest leaders. But Solomon does deconstruct leadership a bit in this passage and some of the ones that have been highlighted. So first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to delve into that and look at Ecclesiastes and how Ecclesiastes helps us see when there are at-risk, immature leaders among us, what should we be looking for? The Bible wants us to do that. And then second, we're going to look at the cynicism of our cultural moment toward leadership and the danger that presents to us today. Not just for Christians, but for non-Christians or people who don't yet believe in Jesus. And then finally, we'll observe the only leader worth following, Jesus, and how he, in an upside-down but beautiful and attractive way, shows us that there is at least one leader worth following, and anyone who follows him is, is worth following as well. Let me pray for us. God, this is a a big topic, and it's one that that touches our lives in so many ways. I mean, the amount of counseling hours that have been spent in rooms um, pouring out our hearts about what do we do with this or that thing that has happened, that leader, this parent, that coach, that teacher. What do we do, Lord, in a a world filled with uh, examples of, of men and women who have not lived up to uh, the standard. But yet, God, we we pray that as we look at that, that we would be repenting people and see that in our own hearts where it's true that we would also be looking to Jesus, the one who directs us forward with beauty. we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, we'll talk about leadership deconstructed. Then we're gonna talk about the heart of cynicism. And then we're gonna talk about leadership reconstructed. So first of all, leadership deconstructed. So Solomon gives us... at least three categories to use as we assess immature at-risk leaders among us. And as we go through this list, if you are humble, you will probably find yourself on the list. Uh, none of us are perfect. None of us meet the standard. Uh, what you want to look for is not little incidents here and there of failure, but, but meta uh, character flaws. If you're thinking about leaders of the church or leaders in society Uh, Things that characterize uh, leaders—that's what we need to be really careful about. Patterns of behavior. Sign one that Solomon points out to us of an immature or at-risk leader is that leaders—these are leaders who isolate themselves. Leaders who isolate themselves. So there's three ways of isolation that he goes into. Three ways you can isolate yourself. First of all, you're not interested in listening. You're not interested in listening to others. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 13, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So Solomon's point here is that if you're looking for a good and godly leader, you have to look beyond merely who is older and who is younger. You need to find a leader worth following, and you do that by finding someone who has learned how to listen to others, and they are still listening to others. Okay? Okay? And there is a difference. So you have to, at some point in your life, learn that you have to listen to other people. You actually can't learn anything new if you're the one who's talking. You realize that? If you're always talking, you're not learning. They don't, they don't go together. But you have to learn how to listen. And then, and this is also a challenge, the older you get, you have to learn how to keep on listening. So if you get older and you, you feel like you're done listening and now is your opportunity to contribute everything that you know to the world, that's also a dangerous place to find yourself. This was one of Mark Driscoll's problems. Among many, he gained more, as he gained more responsibility, he listened less to others. Instead of bringing people around him and keeping counselors and friends around him who could speak into his life, he systematically got rid of them. And so you can live in isolation as a leader, even if a lot of people are around you, if you're not listening. So that's one way to isolate yourself, not listening. The second way to isolate yourself is to hide behind physical strength or angry words. Chapter 9, verse 16 and 17, but I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of rulers among fools. So you can build or reinforce your own isolation through physical strength. Think of the the husband who physically through either words or violence controls his wife. Think of wives who do this to their husbands. I, I actually know of examples like this as well. That happens on the home front. Think of, if you want to look at the political world, think of Kim Jong-un in North Korea. How, How does he stay isolated? Through power. Abusers or dictators make the threshold of confrontation, the cost of confrontation, so high that people don't want to confront them because it's too costly, and through their power, they maintain isolation. The third way to isolate yourself is by surrounding yourself with fools, by surrounding yourself with fools. That's in verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. I won't read all of those again. But you can also insulate yourself as a leader by surrounding yourself with foolish people. Uh, sometimes we might call them yes-men or women, uh, people who simply agree with the leader about everything that He says, this can lead to what is called groupthink, where there aren't any original ideas except the leader's ideas, and the only reason why you're on the board or the cabinet or the session, whatever the leadership structure is, is not because you're actually qualified to be there, but you ideologically agree with the leader and you do not confront him or her. And therefore, there is no challenge to leadership, and even though there are men and women around the leader, There's actually not any parity or accountability, and so the leader stays isolated. The first way to look for an at-risk leader is to look for someone who is isolated. Verse 11, I will read. It says, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, it is no advantage to the charmer. So the narcissistic leader's goal is to charm the people around them so that through whatever means possible, he or she is not challenge, but they need to be careful because in the end, usually the leader is the one who pays the largest price. So Solomon says, number one, look out for immature and at-risk leaders by looking for someone who has isolated themselves. The second sign of an immature or at-risk leader is leaders who like to hear themselves talk. Leaders who like to hear themselves talk. And there's two different ways of talking that Solomon talks about here. First of all, untrue or unwise words in verses 12 and 13, he says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. This is the picture of an unwise man or woman who says things without thinking or maybe with thinking, But they have to keep on clarifying over and over again what they really meant the first time they said it incorrectly, uh, irreverently, uh, just wrongly, or maybe they just lied. But they have to keep on talking to add up, to clarify uh, the narrative, so to speak. Each time they talk, they add more foolishness to the conversation Instead of stopping and owning that their communication was inadequate or improper or wrong, the, the pride of the leader will not allow them to do that, and so they keep on spinning untrue, unwise words. The second type of words is multiplying words. 10, 14, a fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. This is someone who literally thinks that their brain thinks the greatest thoughts in the world and their contribution to humanity or to those around them is to share those thoughts with everyone. Um, Maybe this is verbal processing, but maybe this is just an arrogance of like, the more I talk, the better it is for everyone. I am blessing the world through my words. And so the words just keep on continuing. X, formerly known as Twitter and other social channels, are a dream scenario for narcissists. Now, they don't even have to say anything. They can just be in the bathroom and type out whatever they want, and people can listen to them even when they're sleeping. Politicians and pastors have to be the world's worst in this category. Generally, Uh, They are those who communicate well. They have some intelligence or people wouldn't listen to them. They care about causes that people resonate with. And so the words continue on and they multiply. If a leader's heart, as was in our confession, I thought it was great, Jeremiah 29, 11, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? Jesus said himself, I do not entrust myself to any man because I know what is in a man. The heart is wicked. If the heart of the leader is not being reformed by the gospel, leading to humility, then their influence is dangerous. I was at a conference about 25 years ago when I was in college. I think it was, was about right. Um, and Crawford Loritz uh, was one of the speakers, and there was a, a men's breakout, and he kind of gave his talk on, on purity. It was a great talk. Someone asked him, Crawford, have you been able to be faithful For these years of ministry, he was probably around 60 at that time. He's older now. And uh, he said, I walk scared, young man. I walk scared. I know what I'm capable of. I walk, he said, I walk every day on the edge of an abyss, and I could fall into it at any time. And I don't want to hurt people. And so I stay close to Jesus. It was a really good answer. So Solomon says, look for someone who talks too much if you want to find an immature, potentially dangerous leader. The third sign of an immature, at-risk leader is leaders who are more concerned about action than character. More concerned about action than character. The first element of this is moving forward without knowing the way. Uh, 10, 15, the toil of a fool wearies him, because he does not know the way to the city. The fool keeps on doing without stopping and thinking, without developing himself or herself, and it wears them out because they're actually not getting anywhere. Now, for someone like me who's on the more entrepreneurial, quick action side of the population, these are good verses for me. They're, they're difficult. I don't like waiting. I, I like to have an idea and move forward. That's just kind of how I'm made. And there's nothing wrong with being entrepreneurial, uh, but I think that people like me have to learn that God has given all kinds of people to the church or to the world, engineers, accountants, people that take their time and think through things. In the best case scenario is when you have all the different personality types and giftings working together, asking the hard questions, but ultimately moving forward. Many good ideas do not need to be pursued some do, and we have to figure that out together. So the first way to care more about action than character is to move forward without knowing the way. The second is that you celebrate before the work is done. You celebrate before the work is done. Verse 16, woe to you, O land, when your chi- king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. I think in general we're not very good As a society, probably even as a church, at celebrating, we need to improve in that area. Uh, But we need to also celebrate at the right times. Uh, There's nothing more disconcerting than someone who celebrates either all the time or celebrates before they actually have done anything. They've actually gotten the work done. A typical caricature of a college student is one who parties first and studies second. And apparently that's what was going on in the kingdom at some points, the, the princes who had the money were, were partying in the morning. And he, the way he describes it is that you, you party in that way to, uh, it leads to drunkenness rather than it being for strength. So if you celebrate after the work is done, then that is strengthening and leads to good moving forward for you, for those who are around you. I used to work closely with a guy on a team who played golf all the time, and whenever we would play golf together, he would complain about how m- much work he uh, still had to do and how much work his wife still expected of him. And I thought that was deeply ironic um, that he played golf all the time. He was not a professional golfer. Uh, he, that's not what he did for a living. And yet, you know, when he lost his job and when his marriage went south, it wasn't surprising he didn't know how to work hard and celebrate wins after they were done. So these are signs of an at-risk or immature leader. Like I said, I thank the Lord for the scriptures that instruct us. Uh, There's much I can learn here. Uh, There's much we can all learn from this that will drive us closer to Jesus. But what we want to be looking for as we're looking to follow leaders is, do we have someone who is repenting and turning toward Jesus or we have someone who life is not; um, he's not living in community. He's speaking before listening, and uh, he's just uh, celebrating at the wrong times. So, the second thing I want to talk about is the heart of cynicism. I think cynicism is a systemic, societal response to the leadership moment that we find ourselves in. Because we've been burned under destructive leaders, the common cultural response is one of cynicism. So what is cynicism exactly? Well, I think there's two ways we can look at cynicism. The first is self-protection. Cynicism, we feel, will protect us. Emotionally, we have been hurt by our leaders. And so the more cynical we are, Uh, the more we can protect ourselves from being duped like that or hurt like that. Again, you can think of cynicism in this way as being like a refuge that you can run into that you hope will protect you from being hurt by bad leadership again. The second way you can look at cynicism is the act of seeing through. The act of seeing through something. This is how C.S. Lewis... Talked about cynicism. He said cynicism is the act of trying to see through something to what's really behind it, to what's really going on. We are nervous and rightly so, and so we keep on trying to see through. And Lewis goes on to say: think of cynicism as being like a window. The point of a window is that you would see through it, and that you would ultimately see something beautiful through the window that is worth beholding, that's worth fixing your gaze on, that's, that's actually worthy of, uh, of your, your vision, of, of it being something that you want to have your life about. And the problem with cynicism, Lewis says, is that if, if the point of cynicism, if the end game of cynicism is seeing through something, then it's like standing in the kitchen and looking at the window itself all the time, perpetually, and never looking beyond the window to see something that's worth seeing. He says it's absurd, it's madness to live life that way. It, on one hand, it makes sense. but On the other hand, the heart of the cynic is to actually see something worth seeing. Olivia and I had the opportunity uh, in 2003 to actually study one summer at Oxford. Um, it was amazing. We studied at Wycliffe Hall. I took a class on church planning and postmodernism. She took a class on the Gospel of John. And as part of our studies that summer, we went on a C.S. Lewis tour, the life of, of C.S. Lewis, went to his house, and right there in his kitchen, just behind the sink, or maybe right behind where you might prepare a sandwich, is a window. And just behind the window is a flower garden, and I believe that Lewis was probably thinking, it's a beautiful flower garden, he was probably thinking about his kitchen when he wrote about that. What would it be like to be doing the dishes and to be making a sandwich and all you ever do is look at the window itself? You never actually see the flower garden on the other side. I think what we all want, the heart of cynicism, is to see through and to find something worth beholding, something worth gazing at. Where can we look to find this kind of beauty now applying it back to leadership? Well, Solomon has told us that you're not going to find it in your uh, leadership around you. Ultimately, you're not going to be able to find it there. You have to look beyond the human leaders around you to one leader, one person, who actually can stand in the garden and be beautiful enough to follow, be worthy enough to follow, and that is Jesus Christ. So the final point is leadership reconstructed. Leadership reconstructed. So it's not just Solomon who wants to blow up our idealistic notions of what human leaders are capable of. The whole Bible does a pretty good job of describing for us, of helping us move forward through history to get us ready for Jesus. I mean, Adam and Eve. Yeah, they're the first parents, but they they weren't very good parents. I mean, were they? I mean, their oldest son killed the second son. That's not something that can take you into leading a parenting workshop. What about Noah? Noah had a drinking problem his son caught him naked in a tent and had to clothe him. Abraham used his wife's beauty more than once for personal advantage when negotiating with world leaders. Moses murdered someone when he was younger. In his old age, he would sometimes throw and hit things. David, a murderer, adulterer, Solomon took his father's sexual sin to a serial level. Peter, Denounced Christ under pressure and had a problem speaking before thinking. And Saul was a murderer of Christians before his conversion. The Bible is kind of getting you ready. Solomon does it through wisdom literature, but the Bible narratively is helping you see that there's really only going to be one leader who can stand in the garden and be beautiful enough for you. There's really only going to be one, and that's Jesus Christ that Jesus reconstructs leadership for us. He helps rebuild our hope in human leadership, that there can be one human being and maybe those who follow him who can be worthy of following. Jesus serves us by, first of all, suffering for us. As was read in our assurance of pardoning grace, taken from Philippians 8 through 11, here you have Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who did not consider equality with the Trinity, staying in heaven, grasping onto that heavenly glory, something that he wanted to hold onto, but no, he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He was made in human likeness. And as he let go of that heavenly glory, he would become a human being. And once he became a human being, he would continue to let go of that glory that was actually due to him, And he would continue to let go of it all the way to the point that he would be crucified on a cross for us. From his high royal position, he did not grasp at power in heaven or on earth. Luke 9.51 says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. I mean, that is incredible that Jesus knowing his time was ending set his face directly toward the center of the city where he knew he was most hated and he would be crucified. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Why did he choose suffering for us? It's because he wanted to obey his father. He wanted to fulfill his mission. He wanted to redeem us from our sins. He wanted to save us on the outskirts of that city where they would crucify him. He accomplished that leadership In the very opposite of what we read about in Ecclesiastes 10, the very opposite, he would not be like all the other leaders of the world, seeing how many people they can amass underneath them as a buffer from suffering. He would not do that. He would be in the lead. He would suffer the most. He would suffer first. If you want to look at the absolute counterexample of Jesus, you can look at Vladimir Putin. How many people is he gonna conscript into his armies from how many countries for his madness? How many people, how many people will be at risk because of him? Jesus reconstructs our leadership by serving rather than being served. Jesus also serves us by washing us. John 13, five, he says, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. So I'm not going to go into all of the, that's pictured here and all the description, but just suffice it to say that washing the feet in the house was the worst job. It was gross and disgusting, and only the lowest of servants did it. And why did Jesus do that? If we're appalled by that, then we should even be more appalled by the cross. Because Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to wash your feet, but that is really nothing. It is nothing compared To to washing your feet, all I have to do is is stoop a little bit and wash your feet, but I'm going to stoop even further down. I'm going to go even lower. I'm going to go to the lowest of the low so that I don't just don't wash your feet, that I can wash your souls from sin. I'm going to wash you clean by stooping all the way down, all the way down on the cross, and I'm going to reconstruct leadership for you in that way. And then finally, Jesus serves us by walking with us, Hebrews 2:18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you realize, as you struggle along life's path, that Jesus can totally understand where you are? That he can resonate with your temptation. He knows how difficult it is to stand up strong. And he's not a God who is standing up there in heaven or sitting up there in heaven. And looking down at us and saying, look, I died on the cross for you. Can you just get it together and try a little bit harder? That's not what he's doing. He's actually walking alongside us like a true friend. We've all had friends who have said, hey man, I'll be there for you. But then when you need them, they ghost you. They're not around. They don't help. Jesus is not that kind of friend. Jesus is the friend that says, I walk with you, and he does walk with us. He suffers with us. He holds our hand. He encourages us. He advocates for us. Sometimes he needs to tell us the truth about ourselves so that we'll follow him a little more closely as our shepherd. He's able to help us because he is with us. So Jesus reconstructs leadership for us. He isn't isolated do you realize that Jesus still seeks counsel when he, on earth, and he still does in heaven, he still seeks counsel from his Father. You realize it's amazing that Jesus, who is, he doesn't actually need to listen to you or me, but he does. He wants to hear from you. He's a listening God. Yes, Jesus speaks, but when he speaks, it's humble and it's the right amount. It's not too much. It's not self-aggrandizing. And when he acts, he's got the character to back it up. He's already thought it through before day one even started. So Jesus is the only leader worth following. Jesus is the answer to our cynicism. Jesus, when we look through the window into the garden, only Jesus is standing there. It's him. He's the one. He's the one who can reconstruct leadership for us in a world of deconstruction. So how should you respond to the leadership of Jesus? Well, first of all, make sure that you are following Jesus personally. If you've never said to Jesus, "I want to follow you. You are truly beautiful. You are the you're the only one that I can really follow and trust." Then I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to do that today. If you've said that before to Jesus, if you've said, Lord, I want to follow you, I really trust you, and then now you're actually not. You're, you're really not. You're, you're doing your own thing, and every time something kind of difficult comes up, you, you really don't trust him. This is an opportunity to trust him today, to trust him again today. You know, it's really um, convenient uh, to be able to sit there and criticize everyone else about all their flaws, And to not own up to the ways that you actually might need to grow as well. And so the more we trust in Jesus, in our places of weakness, the more humble we become. And the more we can really actually help other people. The more we can become leaders worth following. But the reality is that though Jesus is the only one standing in the garden who is really worthy of our trust. God has built the world so that we do need leaders you do have to follow other human beings in this world. You have to follow pastors, and you have to follow politicians, and you have to uh, have teachers, and, and you have to get married, and maybe one day you will, And if, you, if, you, if that's what the Lord has for you. If you get married, you have to look at who you're going to marry, what are the qualities I'm looking for, and, and things like that. And, um, so what do we look for? What do we look for in those that we might want to follow How can we discern this? Well, you have to look beyond the rhetoric. You have to look beyond the persona, the website, the narratives. And you might want to look for some of these things. Are your leaders repenting men and women? Are they repenting? Are they being shaped by the grace of God? How do they respond to failure or weakness in others? Do they preach grace but demand perfection? It's one of the most common critiques of the people on the list that I didn't share with you that's so long is that when the staff were interviewed about the pastor to a person, they all said, they didn't, he didn't want to hear from me. He did not want my feedback. He wanted us to do whatever he wanted and that was it. Do they preach grace but expect perfection? Do your leaders listen to others? Is there a humility among them or do they already have all the answers and they're just waiting for you to get it? Do you see thoughtful gospel action happening among the leadership? This is a tough one because the best way for leadership structures to be built is to lead in plurality. And plurality takes time and communication. But at the end of the day, there is important work to be done in this world for the name of Jesus. Jesus. And so you need to be asking the question, are we going to act, are we going to act upon this thing that that I feel like is so important? Now, we may or may not always agree, like when you come and give feedback, and we really do welcome that. And we may or may not agree, but we really want to hear that from you. But ultimately, inaction is not okay. And so if you feel like we've been thinking about this, maybe you don't know, but if we've been thinking about something long enough and you feel like there really needs to be action for the sake of the kingdom of God, you come and let us know, okay? Because we are here and we're here and we need to take action for the sake of the gospel moving forward. So rather than getting caught in a doom loop of cynicism, which is where a lot of us are, a lot of us find ourselves May we not. May we look through the window and see Jesus in the garden and may other people be there with us, finding Christ, understanding his grace. May we find others along the road, maybe even leaders who can lead us in the direction of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can wash our souls from sin, humble us from pride, and he calls us to follow him. May we, as a church, And as a society, may we have children growing up that can embody leadership that looks something like the leadership of Jesus Christ. I pray for that. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we are amazed at you. We're so grateful that there is one There is one who stands the test. There is one who is beautiful. There is one whose glory is so worthy and so alluring. There is one who has never sinned. There is one who is the great servant of all. There is one who is the great shepherd of the sheep. There is one who loves us. There is one who, when we read through a confession like we had today, that is so true of so many areas of our lives, that you love us. There is one who has come, who has not grasped at glory, but has given his life as a ransom for many. There is one who does not condemn us in our pride, but in the very center of our arrogance, you died for us so that we would know you. Lord God, we want to be more like you. We want to be transformed by your goodness and by your grace. We long to see a world where leadership is better and looks more like you. We long to raise our children so that they would be less self-obsessed and more obsessed with you and your gospel. Lord God, we ask for this. And we pray that you would do it for your great and glorious name. I pray if anyone here has never trusted you and if, if some of us here are not following you, Lord, I pray that we would, that you would convict us and help us to follow you into the garden and out into the world to be salt and light for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.